when you're that mirror reflecting the feedback, but the way you reflect it creates more stress and more anxiety and more frustration or it's misheard because of the way that it's reflected. I think that's an important part of it too. And a lot of the boards I'm on uh, over the years, I would say the mirrors are dirty or parts of the mirrors are dirty. And that's another thing that the board can do is just make sure that when you're giving feedback, you're giving feedback in a way that can be heard versus giving feedback in a way that either makes you feel better (laughs) or incorporates all this other exogenous stuff to the company. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. March 10th, 2023 was a crazy day for many clients in Reboot's world. There was an explosive and unexpected event in what was already a challenging time. It was the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. That was a day filled with frantic phone calls, panic texts, chaotic emails. The fear was intense. For many, a time of fear and uncertainty like this can just be overwhelming, can lead to erratic behaviors, panic, and behaviors that are out of character with who we are, what we care about. But for experienced board members, leaders, and investors, they can see through stormy times like these, knowing when they are rooted and grounded in values and what they stand for and focus on what they can control, then this storm too shall pass. In this podcast conversation with Jerry, he's joined by Aileen Lee from Cowboy Ventures and Brad Feld from Founder Group, two remarkably principled and experienced investors and board members. And it centers around how to be useful board members in stormy times like these. I suspect it will be a timely and useful conversation for anyone leading in times of uncertainty and especially for those who have navigated the challenging days of the last 18 months. Enjoy. Are you interested in coaching, but unsure where to start? At Reboot, we know finding the right coach can feel daunting. If you'd like to explore coaching with Reboot, our engagement team will work closely with you to find the coach to best match your goals so that you can learn to unlock what's in your way, leverage your talents as a leader, and live and lead a more aligned life. To learn more about Reboot's approach to coaching or to connect with our engagement team, head to reboot.io slash coaching. So folks, I, I love doing podcasts. Um, and, and I have uh, just a delightful pleasure of having two of my favorite people in the whole world in conversation with me today, uh, Eileen Lee from Cowboy Ventures and Brad Feld from Foundry. Um, but uh, of course, that's almost a 30 year friendship, Bradley, just to name how Yeesh. old we both are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm just so excited to have both of you on the show. Um, you know, a few months back, we were trying to organize this, and we were originally going to talk about the role of the board and effectiveness in boards, and we'll probably sort of uh, go there. But of course, as often is the case, time passes, life changes, and um, what I think would be really helpful today is to have a conversation about um, how to hold oneself during a shitstorm. 
because um, while you know here we are, we're at the tail end of March 2023, and for the better part of 18 months, we've seen this you know falling market valuations and the collapse of what arguably could have been the most hyperinflated time in the venture-backed technology startup time, five years maybe going. We're now a few weeks out after the second largest bank collapse in U.S. history and a bank run um, on everybody's favorite bank, Silicon Valley Bank. And as I think about what we're handling right now, I'm really curious, and I'll start with you, Aileen. How has it been and how have you held yourself during this time? Well, first of all, thank you. Uh, it's really a pleasure to be with you two today. I've been really looking forward to this. Uh, how have I been holding myself? I mean, I guess... One benefit of being older is that, you know, there are many cycles in life and in work, and we have been living through a cycle, and this is something not exactly the same, but we have lived through before. Uh, and so there's some weird, sad familiarity about all the bad things that can happen and all the ways that you could hold yourself. And so I think one of the important things is to actually be stable you know, mm -hmm. and to try and stay calm and have a steady hand, especially for people who have not lived through cycles before. Mm. Does that resonate with you, Brad? Yeah, I like the word stable a lot in that context. Uh, for me, one of the things that I have always tried to do, sometimes better than others, is do some version of absorbing all the stress in the system around me. And my own sort of therapeutic metaphor for it is that I can metabolize uh, high amounts of stress in the system. And that stress mm. is stress on me, but stress on companies and stress on founders. And part of what I try to do and, and how I hold myself or show up, Jerry, to use your language, is um, I am a full participant in whatever is going on mm. that a CEO is trying to sort through and navigate through. My view is my job is to help her be successful, period. Mm. Mm. And I need to be there to uh, participate in that. Um, but as part of that, I absorb a lot of the system stress. And because I can metabolize it at a high rate, it doesn't cause me that much stress. There is a point at which my metabolizer stops working as effectively and I start to, the stress backs up or I start to feel my own stress and anxiety. Um, but as I've gotten older, I've learned how to deal with that a lot better, uh, especially in, in high stress situations. So it's this notion of being stable. I like it's, it's, um, uh, it's also very interesting to reflect on this experience we just had around uh, the the failure of SVB and the bank run that happened and think about the number of people, frankly, who were very experienced and who had been through lots of cycles who were not particularly <laughs> stable, helpful, 
thoughtful uh, in this moment. And if in any sort of for many people, how it amplified what was something that didn't need to happen the way it played out because of that lack of stability. Mm. Aileen, you were laughing. And what, what were you thinking of, Aileen? Yes, the irony is that, you know, you're in, in the context of this conversation around boards, right? And that your, yep. your, your venture investors are, you know, generally supposed to be the more experienced ones, right? Who've seen things, can, can you know, your responsibility as a board member is to kind of be a, a, wise, um, a wise hand to the CEO and to the leadership team. And um, yeah, I think there was a lot of, uh, a lot of anxiety mm-hmm. and some, a fair amount of panic and a mm-hmm. lot of game playing and people kind mm-hmm. of trying to game theory out the system and thinking about, oh, we're in a prisoner's dilemma. So I better, you know, I should pull my money first. And, you know, mm-hmm. and it just, it, this, it had a big domino effect. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the, the opposite of what we would expect a good board member to be, generally. No, there's a very important piece of of, of this that, you know, is, uh, a few people have written, I think, pretty well about it publicly. Mm. Um, ben Thompson maybe wrote the best thing I saw, um, Stratechery, on it. Uh, but, you know, like it very quickly became the, the, the sort of notion that this is a prisoner's dilemma and that, you know, it was a bank run, you know, a mob-fueled bank run. I a saw Twitter-fueled article, bank run. Twitter-fueled, and then I saw another article that said, mm-hmm. well, it wasn't really Twitter. It was all the private WhatsApp groups and right. all the private VCs calling other entrepreneurs, stuff like that. Start with all of that as uh, it doesn't matter what flavor of that it was. The essence of a prisoner's dilemma is that it's a single-turn game. Mm. That, that you're playing one time and you win or you lose. And the whole essence, and I, you know, I wrote about it in Startup Community Way, which was the second book I wrote about Startup Community, the whole mm. essence of startup communities and entrepreneurship and the whole ethos that I tried to extract from sort of some of the powerful characteristics of Silicon Valley and scale them, democratize them globally in terms of entrepreneurship was this notion that entrepreneurship is a multi-term game Mm -hmm. and that the experience that you're playing as a founder, as an investor, as people participating in a startup community uh, are games that have many, many plays to them and that there's a lot of failure along the way. There's a lot of stress along the, the way, but, and it's not that everybody's trying to help everybody else but that you're consciously doing things where the decision-making is not only the short-term, single-term decision-making that's going on. All right, so with the concept of that being abstract, what happened in literally 48 hours was an entire industry that talked about how this ethos was part of it um, just went executed a complete opposite 180 degrees from that ethos. Mm. And, you know, yeah, Silicon Valley Bank made lots of mistakes and there's lots of ways you can sort of say this was the reason that that was the reason, but fundamentally none of that had to happen. There was no fundamental existential bank going out of business problem until the, the, you can say the VC community, or you can say the entrepreneurial ecosystem decide 
everybody created this fervor, this frenzy of fear that somehow if I didn't get my money out of the bank, my money was gone, mm. which then becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And the interesting thing, you know, this was this just to sort of land in the moment on Friday when the FDIC stepped in, which was I didn't I didn't see that coming. That was a total shock to me. On Monday, if you'd said, hey, on Friday, the FDIC mm. is going to take over SVB, I, what, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> right. the, the thing to sort of ponder as, as these things unfold is we pretty quickly realized it was absolutely, when I say we, my partners, I, there was nothing we were going to be able to do before Monday morning. Like, what should we do? Like, the answer is there's nothing you can do. Like, you got to sit tight and wait and see what happens next. Mm. Um. That quickly then became, oh, shit, we got a whole bunch of companies that, that can't make payroll Monday morning. And payroll has to be funded Monday to make payroll Wednesday. Oh, shit, that's the problem. Mm. And then sort of the thought process, this is, again, back to the theme of this, like, what do you do? The conversation, the way we functioned internally was much less about worrying about anything in that moment other than how do we help all these companies that we're investors in? How do I help all these CEOs who I'm on their board navigate through what is incredible anxiety in this moment for them, mm. which is the short term is I can't make payroll. The long term is what's going to happen to my money, right? But it's, it's like, let's not worry about that. Let's focus on making sure you have cash on Monday so you can get payroll funded. Yeah. Aileen, what, what was that weekend like for yeah, you? Yeah, so it was... A combination of like the different levels, right? Um, mm. Our firm, Cowboy Ventures, ha we bank with Silicon Valley Bank. So we had our money at Silicon Valley mm. Bank. So there's a decision about what do we do about our accounts? Do we, mm -hmm. you know, do we try and get it out? Do we try, do we leave it in? Because if we join the, the stampede, it doesn't help. Um, and then how are our portfolio companies doing? And how much do they have at risk? Is there, you know, just risk of disruption to business? And then obviously, like, you know, a lot of these companies have been so thoughtful about trying to extend runway during the downturn, even if, you know, losing 20% is like a big hit to your runway. Yeah. Um, yeah. So then we started strategizing like, okay, well, what do we know about whether regulators and the banking committee of Congress is going to actually going to save SVB and make account holders whole? or not, and trying to figure out what can we do to make sure, because I we were hearing from a political perspective that it was starting to get political, and that maybe some long, like politicians were gonna use Silicon Valley Bank as a scapegoat and like punish them because it represented all the sins of Silicon Valley. And mm -hmm. so a lot of everyday workers and nonprofits and schools and starving startups would be punished if Silicon Valley Bank deposits were not saved. So we heard, um, from contacts in Washington and in state offices that any stories of like, you know, regular people who are going to be negatively impacted if the deposits got wiped out would be really helpful to argue the case against the fact that Silicon Valley Bank was just an elitist bank for, for you know, um, libertarian startup founders. <laughs> uh, and so we started pulling together examples of organizations that, um, not based in Silicon Valley, West Virginia, running warehouses, um, schools, nonprofits to basically share with lawmakers and committee members to understand the impacts of 
and potential domino effects of mm. Silicon Valley bank deposits being wiped out. And so, and we became part of a group of people who are working together to do that, both in the nonprofit and uh, in the on the for profit side. So that's kind of how we spent a lot. Of, a lot of the weekend was triaging ac- across those three different buckets. Well, I really love the way I, you know, I was in touch with each of you during that time, just checking in as I checked in with a lot of different people, because I too am a, and, yeah, yeah. Um, a metabolizer of anxiety. It's kind of my role. And I want to, I want to read to you, you know, we did a VC boot camp uh, last week and, and, um, I want to read to you a little bit of what I shared with them. Um, And I think that this is a kind of jumping off point. This builds on the stable image. And it's a jumping off point, I think, too, because, you know, as interesting as it is to talk about the, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, there is a, a way of seeing what you both just shared as a model for how to be in a lot of uh, this experience. And so this is from Pema Chodron's Uncomfortable with Uncertainty. And she writes, all around us, the wind, the fire, the earth, the water are always taking on different qualities. They're like magicians. We also change like the weather. We ebb and flow like the tides. We wax and wane like the moon. We fail to see that like the weather, we are fluid and not solid. And so we suffer. We resist that we change and flow like the weather, that we have the same energy as all living things. When we resist, we dig in our heels. We make ourselves really solid. If we learn to sit still like a mountain in a hurricane, we learn to sit still like a mountain in a hurricane, unprotected from the truth and vividness and the immediacy of simply being part of life, then we are not this separate being who has to have things turn out our way. When we stop resisting and let the weather simply flow through us, we can live our lives completely. Now, you know me, you both know me. I'm kind of a knucklehead. I see Buddhism in everything. When I was watching what was going on and tweets in all caps and people freaking out, and I was thinking about like your point about anxiety and I was seeing it from my angle. And you know that I counsel both people on both sides of the table to use Mark Schuster's term, right? What strikes me is that a really effective board member arguably first and foremost knows how to manage their own anxiety so that they can then be that stable mountain in a hurricane and be of service to people. Does that make sense, Brad? Yes. And, Mm. um, so many people and board, let's, let's just say board members, many board members, uh, and including investors. So non-board member, you know, non-investor board members, mm. but also investor board members don't have enough self-awareness of 
how they are presenting themselves to the people around them. Mm. And so for in some people, it's the inability to process your own anxiety. But for others, it's the lack of awareness of how you're actually appearing to others. And I don't mean that you have to be, you know, totally calm and, you know, Jerry-like. No, Jerry-like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Jerry. I'm not suggesting a particular affect, right? Um, but it's it, whatever your own personality is and whatever your own affect is, in the context of that being consistent, mm. especially in situations of uh, where, where you know that there's extreme stress on the system mm. and, you know, in very short order, you, you see it. And, you know, the feedback you get, the feedback you can get that's helpful uh, is almost opposite of what you would expect. So the more you get, the more one gets pulled into a public real-time conversation about something, it's often because the histronics or the provocativeness of that person is greater, right? Mm. I mean, in contemporary media, the real-time nature of it is you want more provocation. Mm. And um, one of the things that plays out in that, and it doesn't, it doesn't have to be TV, it could be Twitter, it could be whatever, is that the engagement model is that people are actually almost, it's almost like out-of-body experience in some level. Mm. Like, is that really that person? Is that person, what, is what I'm seeing really have anything to do with reality here? Mm. Mm. And that's the the and part of it. It's the contrast to what is most helpful as, again, we're saying board member, but I think as a mentor, frankly, as a leader in those moments, mm. when you're trying to help in a leader, but in support of others, mm-hmm. is clarity of thought. Mm. Like your ability in this middle of this crazy moment to sort of take a deep breath and say, all right, I got a lot of signals coming at me. My eyes are wide open here. I don't know what the right answer is. Mm. What should I do? And what should I encourage people to do versus, oh, shit, that person said that. Therefore, I should say that. Mm. All caps, scary, bad, monsters, terrible, Mm. horrible, ending (laughs) of world. And against the backdrop of, you know what, fuck it, in the end, we all die anyway. Mm. Right? So, So, like, what are you trying to... What are you trying to be and who are you trying to be in this moment? Totally. Yeah. I mean, when some of that stuff was going down over the weekend, yeah, it almost felt like if you're watching the movie, you know, how like something's going, some, there's some emergency and some people just panicked and do really stupid shit and like every man for themselves. And then they wind up like kind of killing themselves by accident because they did something overreactionary and stupid. And like the people who can stay calm, look around, figure out like, okay, what's the play and how do I save as many people as I can? And then you rally people and you figure out a way out together. It kind of felt like we were watching that play out in real time. Yeah, uh, look, I, I, I think I think that the ability to do what you just said, Aileen, I think is, is incumbent or is dependent upon in some ways what Brad was saying about, you know, understanding how you come across, but also understanding that the th- the threat that you're perceiving isn't 
isn't quite what you think it is. It's that it's like amygdala gets hijacked in that moment. And, you know, I'm going to expand this beyond the Silicon Valley uh, bank weekend, if we will, weekend at Bernie's, whatever we want to call it, into um, one of the phenomena that I see happening uh, either directly or vicariously in boardrooms, which is, you know, uh, we've seen a profound drop in valuations in the last 18 months. You can argue whether or not valuations are where they should be or should have been all along or whatever. And I've seen a number of firms um, sitting there uh, counting their chickens before they hatched, trying to raise or having raised new funds based on markups that are no longer relevant. And I've actually seen investor board members uh, block the right kinds of financings to keep companies going forward because they did not want to take a write down. And, you know, again, I wish that we had a video because watching Aileen's face when I say these things, <laughs> she's like, oh, the, the rolling of the eyes, right? Yeah. I mean, yes. have you seen yeah. this, Aileen? Oh, gosh, yeah. I know it's going to some. You know, what Brad is saying is yes, and it's like I was talking with my partner Ted about this, the topic mm. of boards and what we're seeing, and I think he would echo what you said, which is he said that VCs are nervous, right? A lot of VCs right. have a lot going on on their partner table, their you know their personal portfolios, and they're really they have a lot of anxiety. But instead of actually putting that in a box and thinking clearly in their role, it's like they're projecting their anxiety onto founders and, um, and they're just kind of asking a bunch of questions and not really thinking through the implications of the way that they're showing up. Uh, and I don't, it's not super constructive. I, yes. I think there's, there's a projection going on mm -hmm. and I would build on it and say what I've often seen. And I used to see this all the time, Brad, we've talked about this in the past. Sometimes people will mask their anxiety with aggression. Yep. And the aggression comes down as you should do, do this and you should have to do that. And so if there's a disconnect from self-awareness. Hey, I'm panicking right now. I'm probably not going to be a mountain in a hurricane, right? Um, if there's that disconnect and then we've been trained that a good board member is a tough person, who's always yelling at people because there is that meme that goes out there as opposed to saying, no, actually we're a partner in this yeah. endeavor, right? So you take that plus a heightened level of anxiety and you got a whole lot of <laughs> craziness going on in boardrooms. You know, though, I might argue for the past five years that stereotype of the tough board member, that's a lot harder to find. If anything, we've Is gone it? the other direction. Good. Yeah. Well, at least I think because the market got so competitive, everyone was chasing ah. investments and they were really, they, you know, this idea of being founder friendly somehow got construed with not having a point of view and just doing whatever the founders said wanted to do and just saying, you're great. You're awesome. Everything's mm. great. Don't worry about anything. And that like a lot of people that had became their board role was like, just being a cheerleader all the time and mm. never actually challenging much.
That's super helpful. I, you know, uh, uh, you know, I may be holding an old mental model uh, in, well, in that regard. Or you're just on more constructive boards, maybe. <laughs> I, 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 I would add a piece to it. I, I strongly agree with what Eileen just said. Uh, but I go, I go further. I think um, the number of inexperienced, uh, the number of inexperienced venture uh, board members in this cycle mm-hmm. uh, are pretty extreme. Um, that combined with that inexperience combined with a perspective of what you should or shouldn't be doing and a general busyness created an enormous amount of passivity among Mm. board members. And that passivity translated in lots of different ways. The one that was the worst from my frame of reference is complete and total lack of critical thinking. Mm. And so you had people sitting in board seats who, again, my personal philosophy is, you know, if, if I'm in a board, a board seat, my job is to do everything I know how to do to help the CEO be successful. And I like to say I like to make one decision, which is do I support her or not? And if I don't, my job is to do something about it, which is not fire her, but it's to try to get back to a place where I support her. But fundamentally, as a, again, private company board member, in some ways, I put myself in a position where I work for the CEO rather than the CEO works for me. Yeah, there's governance stuff, et cetera. But, what, but that forces me to have to be a critical thinker in that context versus a cheerleader. Um, the Or versus sort of like, well, I'm on so many boards, I can't pay attention to all of them, so I'm not going to worry about this one because everything's going okay here. Oh, my gosh, things aren't going okay here. Now I have to go fix a problem somewhere, right? So you're sort of stuck in these weird places versus showing up each time and saying, okay, what's the context? What's going on? What's the actual dynamics? What are the dynamics? And, and what do I actually have to do here mm. uh, you know, to help this CEO move things forward with this company? The, the other thing is, you know, I think that um, there's so many words that are now overused to the point of not being meaningful in the context of entrepreneurship. And, you know, there are words like transparency and authenticity I think empathy is probably in that situ- in in that word universe too, where mm. like it doesn't mean anything anymore. Oh, I'm empathetic. What what the fuck does that mean? Mm. Um, like intellectually, you can define the word, but how are you behaving? And this notion that uh, as a board member, you know, should you or should you not be empathetic to the challenges that the CEO uh, is facing or that the company is facing? I don't know. I don't. I'm not even really sure what that means. Because if you aren't naturally empathetic and able to show up that way, then that's just an act. So it's the same kind of thing where there's this this sort of whole language around what should you do, how should you be that disconnects or disassociates from this notion of, hey, my job here is to help this company navigate through. And to do that, I have to provide, I have to do my own critical thinking about what's going on versus just follow what other people are saying or ignore or pay no attention or be the smartest person in the room because I just asked 10 questions that were hard questions. And everybody says, well, that, uh, he's smart. He's, he knows what's going on. I just wasted 30 minutes of everybody's time asking 10 questions that don't actually matter because the CEO knew the answers to those questions. Nobody else did. Okay, there's something else going on. 
you know, it, it, uh, I'm going to connect this back to something I see CEOs struggling with at times as well, which is confusing kind of a harsh, uh, non-listening stance with strength and therefore associating um, empathy or, or, or defining empathy as uh, not holding boundaries, not holding structure, not holding people accountable. Um, it, uh, it, it brings to mind uh, one of my favorite Brene Brown quotes, which is, clarity is kindness. <laughs> you know, that's one of my favorites too. Yep. Oh, well, it, yes. it, right. It, it, I mean, it, it, it's, why does it work for you so well, Elaine? Well, for me, I grew up pretty non-confrontational. And so, mm. so I get nervous about saying, I, I, my, my tendency is to want, like be a truth teller and to be direct, but I have to sometimes be careful and thoughtful about how I deliver the message. Um, but I think it's sometimes if I'm nervous about delivering the message that needs to be delivered, that reminds, helps me remember, I got to do it because the right. person needs to hear it. That's the right. way to be most helpful. And, the, and, 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 you know, to, to Brad's construct, right. Um, how can I be in service to that CEO? Sometimes delivering bad news now, I would I'd still argue, Brad, that you still need to be empathetic, but empathetic doesn't mean not being direct. It doesn't necessarily mean not being clear, doesn't necessarily mean not saying to somebody, hey, these were the objectives. We didn't hit any of them. This is not working. We need to make some change. Totally agree. Yeah. I mean, completely. And interestingly, and I'll think about uh, Eileen, Eileen, think about uh, the, the directors uh, that, you know, you know, on, on board meeting four, uh, when you realize that that director is going to ask the same three questions they asked the last three board meetings. Um, or that director is going to say, something similar to what they said. Yeah. You know, the last three board meetings and it's, it's it, direct is a good word, right? It, it may not be a direct statement and you can just tell like that person is not happy with what's going on, but they're not actually saying what they're not happy about or they're expressing support, but are they really supportive of what's going on? Do they really understand even what's going on? Or are they just sort of playing a role? And so I, th I think that's the separation for me, Jerry, in this notion of, 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 in using the word empathy, just as an example, like, I think some people are at one end of the spectrum, naturally empathetic to others at the other end of the spectrum, not. Mm. And it got introduced into this language as, you know, in, around entrepreneurship as a, as a value that people wanted to subscribe to mm. again, against this very competitive environment founder friendly, da, 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 da. And so you had a bunch of people who just naturally are not empathetic and or who don't even really know what it means in terms of practice and their own behavior who are now acting in a certain way that's not really helping, mm. you know, the, the CEO 
uh, or or the rest of the board dynamic. And it's just one flavor. I don't want to pick on empath- empathetic because I think I, I think empathy is a very powerful construct. So I don't want to, I don't want to sound not empathetic. I'm very supportive of empathy. I'm very not supportive of of people who are full of shit. Yeah. <laughs> that's fiction I'm trying to make. Agree. I would say so just to kind of like to bring it back to this board topic, which is for the past, I don't know, five years we've been in this cycle where it seemed like everything in t- and I'm thinking about tech boards in particular, mm. right? And venture backed boards. Everything was up and to the right. And so we got in this do loop for the mass majority of boards where founders were like, a board is going to get in my way. I know exactly what to do. Just let me go as fast as I can. And the boards were like, yeah, you do you go as fast as you can. Like we won't get in your way. And so a lot of the people on the board, a lot of the behavior on the board, and then the firms grew bigger. They hired a bunch of people. They gave people checkbooks. They put people on boards without really great training or apprenticeship to how to be a great board member. So you've got a lot of people who don't have great training or role modeling on how to be a responsible board member. And we also, uh, you know, but things have changed. And I think it's an amazing opportunity to reset boards right now hmm. and to kind of start over. Like, you know, that, that phrase, what gets measured gets managed, right? Like, hmm. do you have a healthy board? How do you know? Are you measuring board health? Like, wh- how would you define board health? As the CEO or, if, and, you know, a lot of positions on the board are pretty under leveraged. Like a lot of boards probably don't have board chairs. That can be an incredible partner to the CEO in terms of taking some of that stuff off her plate to measure board culture, board effectiveness, figure out like where are the risks, where are the accelerators, what skill sets do we want to have around our table? Do we have those skill sets around the table? Do we have term limits? Like just so much stuff that we kind of didn't do. I mean, I'm looking at the gentleman who wrote startup boards, (laughs) (laughs) but um, I think it's an amazing opportunity to actually get back to some like you know, some time honored best practices of how to be, have a healthy board and to be a responsible board member. I, I will tell you that, that when I start working with a CEO, um, regardless of where they are in their development path, whether it's the first time she's ever sat in that seat or the fifth time, I, I always have to be the one to bring up. Let's talk about how functioning, high functioning your board is. Um, and the I, I, you know, a few weeks back, I, uh, Fred Wilson and I were having lunch in New York, and I was like, "How are you doing?" This is before the collapse. And he said, "Well, you know, I'm looking forward to getting back to doing business like the old fashioned way, where we're really focused on building." the company together and not chasing deals and valuations and kind of this, what we, what we've just been talking about. And, you know, when I think about it, I'm excited too about this opportunity right now that, that presents itself to really call into question, okay, what is the role of the board in building companies? What, what should we be focused on? How do we encourage the best possible behavior? Uh, because, you know, what Ted may have been seeing is what I've been seeing, which is a lot of fear, but also a lot of self-optimization. Uh, forgetting the fiduciary responsibility of representing all shareholders and not just my stake <laughs> in a particular company. Mm-hmm. And... At the same time, encouraging this dialogue about 
what can happen. The, the highest functioning board I know is uh, I've worked with this one CEO for over 12 years. When we started working, the, the company hadn't launched, and now they have about 600 employees. Many years ago, the board started with a self-assessment, then went into a 360, where they actually assessed the, every member, and they created a board charter for themselves. How, what are our standards of behavior? How are we going to hold each other? And it wasn't the CEO who had to say to them, hey, you're not hitting your objectives. It was each other. Mm -hmm. And that was a super, that has been a super effective board. And to your point, Aileen, it had a very strong, uh, it was a lead director, not a board chair, but the same role. Mm -hmm. The notion of someone taking responsibility for the effectiveness of the board, not just what's happening at the company. Treating yeah. the board as a function of the business, not separate and above from the business. I was going to say a powerful line that I, I had, it's in, it's in the Startup Boards book. Jeff Lawson, uh, who's the founder and CEO of Twilio, gave it to me, which was, he says, um, some, uh, I'll, I'll paraphrase, um, you know, I, I'm the CEO, I get to build a management team, uh, or my leadership team, and, you know, I view that as a team. And while the board can fire me, why not have a second team that's a mm -hmm. highly functional team that can help this business succeed? And yeah, I acknowledge that the board can fire me, but you know, as long as they haven't fired me, I'm still the CEO. So I'm going to work really hard to make sure I have a second team mm -hmm. um, that can help us be successful. Now, some CEOs can do that without the help of a chair or a lead director. Others can't. Um, and But at the same time, there are some amazing chairs and lead directors that work with the CEO to augment the CEO to help bring that second team uh, to real, real high effectiveness. And if you cycle back, I mean, my guess is that the vast majority, almost none of, uh, uh, you know, my guess is almost zero venture back boards do any real self-assessment with any, uh, on any regular basis. And in fact, you know, still, uh, and maybe we'll come out of it, you know, a little wiser this cycle. Many uh, companies that have venture back boards don't have independent directors. Mm -hmm. um, that, or if they have an independent director, they have seats unfilled. Um, and when they put somebody on the board as an independent director, or somebody comes on the board as an independent director, there isn't really a focus on okay. You know, we've just changed the team. We've added somebody new to the team. Just like we did if we changed somebody in one of the executive roles. We need to do some work to make sure we're functioning as a team. Like on and on and on. I could keep going, right? Like so this whole notion that you've got the second team mm. that can help you. That's not full time. That's not in the business day by day. That's not, you know, like living in what's going on, but can be really functionally impactful on where the business is going and can be very helpful to the to the leader of the business, the CEO, in navigating through especially really challenging times, totally independent of financings and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, acquisition, even, even, you know, what deals you'd want to do. Like, yeah, there's transactional moments, but in the sort of day in, day out of the business, well, your board's not going to be involved in that. But as a CEO, you have a set of people, if they're aware of what's going on, day in, day out, and you understand where they can help you, 
and where they can help you, they understand amongst each other who can help in what way. All of a sudden you have a team that starts to function. You know, I, 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 I think you've, you've hit upon something that's, that's super important. If that second team is involved in the day-to-day, then there's probably a f- dysfunction going on. Huge dysfunction. You, right. Last thing in the world you want is your board. If your board's in your day-to-day, or even if one of your board members is in your day-to-day, then something else is wrong. And there are moments in time where a board member might get involved more actively mm-hmm. uh, in different aspects of the company. I mean, I think of a company that I'm involved in, you know, that for the last 12 months I've been not operationally involved in the company, but I probably talked to the uh, the CEO, you know, uh, at least daily and sometimes more frequently. And, and, you know, with members of the leadership team where, you know, I get involved in very functional things, helping them navigate through some stuff. But that's fine because that was, it's a particular expertise that I have in that type of company. And the CEO is very comfortable with me playing that role. But, you know, I don't have any, uh, any functional responsibility. I don't have any decision-making authority, um, you know, in the day-to-day. So those kinds of things will happen and that's useful, but defining those boundaries clearly are important. And for the board member, the second that board member starts feeling like they are part of the day-to-day team, maybe they're not a board member anymore. Maybe they should be part of the day-to-day team. Yeah. Uh, I, I've told this story many times early on in my venture career, I was spending way too much time in a portfolio company. This was with Mainspring. Oh, sure. Uh, with John Connolly. With and, and it was Bill Kaiser at Greylock who pulled me aside and he said, you think you're helping this company by being there every day. You're actually preventing them from hiring somebody that they really need who is going to be there every day. Now, if you want to join the company, you can leave the board and join the company. But you got to make a decision. That is a great clarity as kindness example. It was it was fantastic. I have never forgotten that. It was my third year as a venture capitalist, and I was still a wet behind the ears, you know, puppy dog trying to do things. And you're right, Aileen. It it was Bill being kind by being clear with me. Yeah. That's much more effective. It's funny. I was going to say there's because there's a weird power dynamic, right, between board members and CEOs, right? And the CEO is going to be nervous about giving feedback to board members who maybe are Mm. distracting the conversation, not being value added because that CEO can be fired, doesn't want to get sideways with the board, all kinds of stuff. And so, you know, how do you address the power dynamic of wanting to have a board that challenges you but makes you feel safe? (laughs) Like there's just a lot of interesting but, and so I was going to, you know, because because of all these newer people in our industry, you do have a bunch of people who are sitting around board tables who maybe are not being super constructive. Their partners don't know it. And the CEO is in an awkward situation of how does he or she tell the board member, hey, you're not actually making my life better or making the company better. And they don't want to rat out the junior partner to the GP or someone saying, hey, this person doesn't know what they're doing. But I've definitely seen that in multiple situations where part of me wants to call my friend who works at the firm and say, hey, you gotta, you gotta fit, help this person be a more effective board member. But that's a really difficult conversation to have. I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, we were called in to do 
a version of our our assessment program, a version of our 360s for this board. And uh, the assignment came from the board chair. And the consistent feedback we came back with was that the board chair was the problem, that they were um, narcissistic, that they were reaching too deeply in the organization, that they were making sexually inappropriate comments to employees. It was a disaster. And uh, when I, you know, I had the unfortunate pleasure of delivering the results and I was uh, vilified. It was my, my, I would, you know, they shot the messenger, right? Six months later, the, the board member was sued for sexual harassment and they were out, you know, and they tail between their legs in the industry. You know, all of this brings to mind one of my other favorite lines. I'm, I'm about to quote poetry here, so be still your beating hearts. <laughs> um, John O'Donoghue has this brilliant poem called Blessing for a Leader. And in it, he has a line, which is, may you be surrounded by good friends who mirror your blind spots. And what we're talking about is good friends both at the board table, but at the management table, mirroring each other's blind spots. And what occurs to me, Brad, is when you th think back to the construct of what is the role of that board, perhaps one way to think about it is that the board should be mirroring the company's blind spots from that perspective of not being in the day-to-day. But having this sort of uplifted, here's what we're seeing in the world at large perspective so that I can see the blind spots. Any resonance with that? Absolutely. And I, I think that, that, so yes, a lot of resonance. And interestingly, like, you know, I mean, there are moments and I'll, I'll, I'll personalize it. I'll, I think of a particular example where I was having a conversation. Well, I'll, I'll name the person. It was Matt Blumberg. Um, uh, Jerry, who you know well, I've, mm -hmm. I've been, I'm on, I was on Matt's prior company's board return path for 20 years, his current company, Bolster. Um, I'm, a, I'm an observer. I chose not to take a board seat so he could uh, add uh, independent board member instead of, uh, instead of me. Um, and in, in that context, you know, I, I talk with Matt regularly about stuff and I was having a conversation with him and I think it might've been with his CFO, Jack, who I've also known for a long time. And um, I had, I'd had a, I'd had a shitty day and it was like a call at the end of the day. And it was just, you know, like a couple of things didn't go the way, you know, they were hard and the thing was a lot of conflict with somebody over something. And I was kind of grumpy and tired for some reason, which is not normally how I am, but whatever, maybe I didn't get enough sleep the night before. And, you know, I feel very safe with Matt and he feels very safe with me. And we had a conversation and I gave him some feedback and it was, it, it, it was it was not helpful the way I gave him the feedback. The feedback itself, I think, was probably useful, but the way I delivered the feedback uh, was not useful. Um, and uh, I realized that, and he sort of played something back to me the next day when I was no longer in a bad mood. And I called him up. I said, "I'm sorry. I I I, I just I'm sorry for how I showed up yesterday." Uh, let me try again. Here, here's what I was trying to communicate, but I'm ignore all the other stuff I said because that wasn't helpful. 
So in that, in that moment, like I was being a good mirror, but my mirror was smudged with all kinds of gunk. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I had snot and boogers and probably some blood. Mm. And so he was looking at the mirror and, you know, getting the reflection with a whole bunch of garbage on it. And I think that's part of it too. It's that, you know, understanding, I mean, you know, he's, he's got a bunch of employees and customers and like a bunch of stress that he's trying to process. And he's looking for feedback on something. Mm. When you reflect, when you're that mirror reflecting the feedback, but the way you reflect it Mm. creates more stress and more anxiety and more frustration or it's misheard because of the way that it's reflected. I think that's an important part of it too. And a lot of the boards I'm on uh, over the years, I would say the mirrors are dirty Mm. Um, or parts of the mirrors are dirty. Parts of the mirrors are great, but parts are dirty. And like, that's another thing that the board can do is really focus on making, or the individuals, I think more even than the board, just make sure that when you're giving feedback, you're giving feedback in a way that can be heard. Mm. Um, versus giving it a f- feedback in a way that either makes you feel better <laughs> mm. or it incorporates all this other exogenous stuff to the company, but it's exogenous stuff that you're having to deal with in other parts of your world and other parts of your life that now the company is getting as well. And I think as human beings, like we're all flawed in many ways, we all have bad days. Um, but that sort of consistency of, okay, I'm focusing on your thing right now. Mm. I'm not bringing the thing from over here into your thing. And, and that's just saying work, like forget about all the other pressures, right? I got, Eileen, you mentioned it earlier. I'm a new partner at a venture fund that's now struggling to raise its next fund because it's hard to raise a fund now. Last five years has been really easy to raise a fund. All you have to do is have a pulse. Um, (laughs) And now you actually, even if you're a really great investor, it's pretty hard to raise a fund right now. And so there's pressure like, do, will I have a job? You know, are they going to cut partners? You know, what's going to happen? What does this actually mean? I'm not in the closed door rooms with the two senior partners who are mapping out the future strategy of the firm, given whatever our new constraints are. So that, that board member investor might have those challenges. You might have personal stuff going on, you know, parent, uh, aging parent, new kids, a partner that you've got uh, challenges with. I mean, all of these things get tangled up. The more of those things that get tangled up in the board communication, the harder it is for you as a board member to help the CEO, the dirtier that mirror gets. And I think we forget about, or a lot of people forget about that in the context of the communication. And so I think, well, maybe Jerry, you can clarify. I mean, I assume some of our listeners are founders and some of them yeah. are, and some of them are investors and board members. That's right. So, That's right. you know, I think for CEOs, you know, you already have a lot on your plate right now, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I hate to add another thing. So maybe you right. do find a lead board member to partner with and use the opportunity to have the conversation at your next board meeting about, the world has changed. It's a great opportunity for us to evolve as well. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how help me to use this opportunity to really set ourselves up for success for the coming years, which are probably going to be pretty rocky. You know, yeah. so let's let's put some setup stuff out there about let, let me share with you a little bit about what I need and what the company needs and what I am getting and not getting from you all. 
And you guys can say the same, but let's figure out how to reset our objectives together. And then if you can find a lead board member who will help maintain that accountability and that culture so that it's not one more thing on your plate, I think it's a great opportunity. I'm going to add one other thing, and it's an unabashed commercial for Brad's book, uh, Startup Boards. You know, uh, there are mitzvahs that we all do in the world. Um, and uh, so many of the books in your startup series, Brad, are mitzvahs. They're gifts. They're good deeds. And uh, helping people sort of navigate, I highly recommend this book uh, for people really looking at the question, doing what, Aileen, you were just talking about, really sort of taking a step and saying, using, using this time period, using this shitstorm, if you will, to sort of really assess and redirect um, uh, what what's happening in that boardroom. And then, you know, I'll close by thanking you both. I mean, what a gift you both are to the community as a whole. I know you both personally. We've not really had this kind of a conversation before. And the truth is, I know your integrity and your values. And, um, you know, too often... The attention is brought to people who, let's call it, uh, don't behave in the best of all possible ways. And not enough attention is brought to the people who are consistently showing up with values and integrity. And the two of you do that day in and day out. And your reputation shows that. So I want to thank you on behalf of everybody that you have supported over the years and will continue to support. So, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks very much. Love back to you. And Eileen, great to hang virtually. Yeah. yeah. I, I love time with you guys. Thank you for all you've both done in the world. Mm. Uh, it's really an honor to be here. If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcast to listen to all five seasons of our podcast conversations and leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. Now, a critical mistake that entrepreneurs make is not thinking about their board of directors early enough. And this is why we created Reboot Your Board, a four-day self-guided practical skills course all about managing your board via the wisdom of Jerry, Fred Wilson, and Brad Feld. Now, this course is for any company of any size, including those who haven't yet taken investment. And over the course of four days worth of rich content, we take you through the practical challenges of growing and developing a high-functioning board. The board relationship doesn't have to be a challenge. In fact, it can be one of the most rewarding aspects of a leadership journey. And when done well, the board-CEO partnership can help each party grow and become the best possible person they can be.
be sure to get started on our Reboot Your Board course at RebootYourBoard.com.